1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology podcast, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. Chinyure Osuji about her book, Boundaries of Love, Interracial Marriage, and the Meaning of Race. Chinyure is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminal Justice at Rutgers University, Camden. Chinyore Osuji, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Thank you. Um, So, I was wondering if we could begin the interview by you just telling us a little bit about yourself, um, your background, your training, um, and then how did you come to write this book? What sparked your interest in this topic?
0: Sure. So, um, again, I'm Chinyore Osuji. Um, I was raised in in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I'm second-generation Nigerian-American, so my parents were born in Nigeria. And, um, yeah, I grew up in Chicago, and I learned that I could do research for a living. So I decided to pursue a PhD in sociology. And so um, I went to the University of Illinois and majored in sociology, and Spanish was my second major. And then I took some time off to do a Fulbright in Spain to do research on African immigrants there. and, but after that, um, I I had a shifting of interest and realized that I was more interested in race in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, I transitioned to a program at Harvard, and I was in the sociology program there for a while, got my master's, wasn't sure if I wanted to do academia, worked at a nonprofit in Chicago, and then ended up at UCLA working with a Brazilianist, Edward Teas. Um, as well as Stefan Timmermans and, you know, more some excellent qualitative, um, some excellent scholars, um, the latter two qualitative scholars. And I was really interested in affirmative action policy in Brazil and trying to understand how it was that, you know, thinking about the 2000s, that this was a time when the United States was dismantling its affirmative action policies. But Brazil was in it at, at the time creating all sorts of affirmative action policies for people who are poor, for people who are indigenous and people who are, um, who are Afro descendants. So I ended up doing that type. I started, you know, researching, um, quota systems in, um, when I was at UCLA and <clears throat> you see, moving there from Chicago, I was really surprised at the large number of interracial couples in Los Angeles. You know, of course, Chicago is a very segregated city. And Los Angeles is a little less segregated, but not much. And I remember just seeing lots of interracial couples, like white guys with Asian women, lots of black men dating like Latinas or Asians or white women. And, but I didn't think anything of it. I was like, whatever. You know, I'm, that's not what I'm here to study, or I'm not really you know, interested in doing research on this. So I remember living in Sao Paulo. I wanted to practice my Portuguese. And... Um, and try to do good while I was there working with a nonprofit. I was just shocked at the lack of interracial couples there. Coming from Los Angeles to Sao Paulo, I had expected this traditional narrative of Brazil being a place where lots of people are mixing across color lines. And when I was in Sao Paulo, I saw a lot of white people with white people, black people with black people, brown people with brown people, and I lived in a neighborhood, Jardines, which is a very well-to-do neighborhood, much like Bel Air, right? Where UCLA is, like, right, UCLA is right next to Bel Air in, West, in Westwood and West Los Angeles. It's a very well-to-do area, but I was in a well-to-do area in Sao Paulo, and I didn't see very many interracial couples, and I was very surprised. And that's when I realized that I wanted to understand what was, this, what was happening in these two settings. And that's what led me to this project.
1: Great. Um, so your book, Boundaries of Love, is um, like you said, it's a comparative study of black, white, and interracial couples in Brazil and the United States. Um, and so you begin the book by talking about what distinguishes your study um, in your in your different fields. Um, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about these kind of distinctions that you that you see of what you offer, um, that how your study is different from other other studies. Uh,
0: yeah. So I think that my study is a little different from others in the sense that um, I use the experiences of interracial couples, not just to understand interracial couples and like what it's like to be an interracial couple, but to understand race, how race works. And I think that this comparative element looking at couples in the United States and Brazil highlights both the similarities and the differences in how race works. So especially sociologists and the social scientists at large, we often say things like race is a social construction, right? I teach my students this all the time, introduction to sociology. And it's, I think it's almost like a, a common phrase in our society. But I think that by looking at race comparatively, it enables us to have a new lens to see how race can be constructed in different ways, but yet in ways that still maintain white supremacy, that still maintain Hierarchies, even if um, there are different mechanisms involved. So that's one of the things that um, I wanted to h- highlight in this book that we can use interracial marriage to understand how race is similar and different across societies. But also, I think it's really um, novel in the sense that I look at how race and gender intersect, as well as educational attainment, to produce different meanings as it pertains to um, how race is constructed in these societies. So by looking at the experiences of black women with white men, as well as experiences of black men with white women, we can see how, um, how these different social categories matter to yield differences in experiences. Also, I was really interested in this thing called the boundary, right? The, the social, when we think about like social boundaries and thinking about ethno-racial boundaries. So there's the anthropologist Friedrich Barth, who really um, pushed for us to not think about ethnicity as solely like what, the different foods that people eat and drink, the different dances, performances that people are engaged in, right, different customs, but instead to think about ethnicity in terms of how people are constructing an us versus them. So what does it mean for for you to be an, a member of my us, and for those people? Over there to not be a member of our us, to be a them. And so, understanding what people, how people are piecing together this boundary, if we think about a wall between different people, and thinking about what are the different bricks that people are using to create this wall between peoples, um, I think is really helpful for understanding how ethnicity works. So, I tried to bring that perspective to um, looking at how. Um, race at, and to some extent ethnicity work in the United States and Brazil and using the experiences, as, experiences of these interracial couples to do so. So thinking about things like how are um, Black people in Brazil thinking about Blackness you know, versus how Black people in the United States are thinking about Blackness and how do their white spouses understand those differences, right? And like, are they thinking about things like basketball? Are they thinking about things like space? Are they thinking about segregation?
1: Um, and so the next question is about um, the, two, the two locations. I think you answered um, this question of why you chose a comparative study um, and what a study in two locations offers. Um, but I hear you also, you started in Sao Paulo, um, which I thought was interesting, and then you moved to Rio de Janeiro. Um, and so I, wondered, I was wondering if you could orient us a little bit, like why Rio de Janeiro and Los Angeles. And if you could just orient us a little bit about the sort of differences in the two locations. So there's differences of like racial ideas um, about racial mixture, um, like you mentioned previously. So I was wondering if you could just talk about those two different locations.
0: Sure, so the academic response is that these are two large cities, right, in their respective countries, like Rio is the second largest city in Brazil, LA is the second largest city in Los Angeles. And they both, I think, occupy, um, they're very important for how people outside of the societies understand those different countries. So thinking about like Hollywood images, people all around the world know the United States through the images it projects through Hollywood, right? Whether or not it's actually true. Um, And thinking about um, Brazil, people often associate it with samba, with carnival, things that are, you know, very central to... um, to Rio de Janeiro, Carioca life. People from Rio are called Cariocas. So that's one aspect, right? Like These are great places to compare. They're both also beach places where a lot of life is happening on the beach. But also, from an academic standpoint, these are both cities where you have opportunities for race mixture to occur. You don't have um, cities that are all black or all white. You have very multicultural, very diverse cities where people are able to meet partners of different colors and connect and and marry. Um and so there's that element you you need to have opportunity for interracial for interracial coupling um if you're going to do a qualitative study especially of interracial marriage. But also there's just the feasibility aspect of it. So I was a graduate student at UCLA and I went there wanting to be Brazilianist and I went to Brazil to do research and realized that I had to be in Los Angeles for another year because of the fellowship I had. So on the other hand, from the feasibility standpoint, like, Oh, I guess I have to stay in Los Angeles for another year. Right. And so that also like, um, lent itself to studying Los Angeles. And I know a lot of like qualitative researchers and ethnographers, one of the, um, first tenets of doing research is starting where you are, you know, where are you like, start here. And so that's one of the, um, one of the things I ended up doing in my research in Los Angeles. Also, I knew a lot of people in Rio de Janeiro. So I didn't go back to Sao Paulo because I didn't have very many connections there, despite living there for about two, three months. I went to do research in Rio de Janeiro because I had several friends, actually from UCLA, who had moved to Rio de Janeiro. In addition, um, one of my advisors had several contacts with people in Rio de Janeiro. So this made it easier to find people to interview.
1: Mm-hmm. OK, <clears throat> thank you. Um, and so moving on to the to the data that you the very rich data that you were able to um, obtain from these interviews with these couples, um, you, you begin by talking about um, this idea of the romantic career, um, which is which is your idea that you um, that you discuss and support um, in the beginning of the book in the first chapter. Um, And so I was wondering if you could talk about your idea of the romantic career and how that relates to the ways in which people end up in in interracial relationships um, in Rio de Janeiro and Los Angeles. Sure. So when
0: I talk about this concept of romantic career, I draw a little bit on um, this notion of the identity career that um, sociologists have talked about. Um, And it's something that's really um, prevalent in, uh, I believe, in the research on deviance. But what I wanted to get at was how people draw on their prior romantic and dating experiences to understand their current preferences, ethno racial preferences, or their lack thereof um, in ro- romantic partnership and in marriage. So, thinking about how people have um, experiences in dating or hookups or um, uh, rejections that lead to them, or that either lead to them. Um, matching up or partnering with particular people or that they partner with particular people and they have this narrative of how that came to happen. So I was really interested in understanding this process of becoming an interracial couple. And so what I find was that um, I was really surprised to see that in Rio de Janeiro, I found that a lot of people were very explicit about um placing ethno-racial boundaries at the center of who they decide to partner with, meaning that people were very explicit about their preferences. Like, I I love Black men. So I met several white women who were married to Black men, of course, um, who talked about adoring nigo, nigo meaning big Black men. So on the one hand, that can have like a sexual connotation, but it didn't always. In the um, Carioca context, when people think about black men There often there's this comparison between black men people who are descendants of africa and people who are portuguese and like spanish and italian descendant people and understanding and and it's a very stereotypical understanding right that, that these are people who are shorter people who are smaller people they're smaller men and so in a way this desire for negum became a, almost a way of saying i love men who are Tall, dark, and handsome. Okay. Um, but this was especially something that I found prevalent among um, white women who had, who talked about explicit preferences for men. Gum. When I talked to black men, their black husbands, several of them said, "You know, I love all kinds of women, or I prefer black women, or I prefer morenas." You know, and that can have all sorts of different meanings. Um, but What can I do? The Lloydas keep coming for me. Like the white girls just keep coming for me. So there was this sense that they were giving into the chase of um, these white Carioca women. And so there's all sorts of complications that happened um, with regards to race and gender in terms of this romantic career. I had several black women who discussed Wanting to date black men or even having relations with black men that ended up that that ended sourly, or um seeing partnering with white men as a almost like a revenge tactic against black men in Rio de Janeiro, um whereas white men had a very different um what I call romantic career in which several of the white men whom I, who I interviewed had prior experiences with dating women who belonged to different stigmatized categories, whether these were women who had eating disorders, women who suffered from other like psychological disorders, women who were um, uh, disabled, physically disabled. And there was this pattern that emerged when I asked them about their um, relationships in which many of the women that they dated before were members of stigmatized categories. And so for everybody who I interviewed, I asked them about their first serious relationship and their last serious relationship before they got married. And this is how I was able to see this pattern of a romantic career. Now, Los Angeles was very different. In which the, There was a lot of silence around having any kind of a preference or any kind of... Um, a desire for people that was based on ethnicity or race. However, the only exception that I found were white men. And I say that, um, or what I see happening is that several of the white men who I interviewed talked about having a penchant for quote unquote exotic women. So that, that exotic term could refer to women who are Um, For example, Jewish women, right? None of the men, the white men who I interviewed were Jewish. It could refer to women who are Italian, who are Portuguese. It could refer to Asian women. It, of course, referred to Black women um, and racially mixed women. So there's this desire for an ethno-racial other that white men were very explicit about in a way that nobody else was explicit about.
1: Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so, in the book, um, you do a great job also of sometimes tying the data to different events in um, popular culture. And in the chapter on boundaries of whiteness, you open it open it with um, Rachel Dolezal and um, her case. And in the chapter, you examine how individuals within the couples understand their own racial identity as white. I mean, and you compare this to how their spouses um, understand the the, the racial identity. Um, and so how do white spouses understand themselves as white? And how do black spouses understand their their partner's whiteness? Um, and then you also have this idea of congruence. And did you find congruence between their understandings of whiteness? Um, and then finally, uh, if you can, like who is Rachel Dolezal and how, how does this, how do your findings around ri- whiteness relate to her case?
0: Rachel Dolezal. She's like, she's one of my favorite people to talk about. Um, I'm, I'm bordering on obsession with her. So I I have a lot to say about her, but I'll be brief. Um, so going back to your first points about, um, yes, I opened up the chapter with the story of Rachel Dolezal because in the United States context, for those of, for those people who aren't familiar, um, Rachel Dolezal was a woman who was born to white parents, grew up in Montana in a, a religious household where they were largely homeschooled, didn't have a lot of outside contact. And um, she grew up and went to Howard University, and shortly after she graduated, took on a Black identity, and to this day identifies as a Black person. And so she was the president of the local NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington. And she's a woman who did a lot of spray tans to darken her skin. Or many black hairstyles or hairstyles that we associate with African-Americans in the United States, like braids or weeds and all sorts of things. And there was a big controversy once it was discovered that she was really white. And so what I say about Rachel Dolezal is that in the Brazilian context, I, from what I've seen from my research, I see that the, I think that the Rachel Dolezal situation reveals just how inflexible racial boundaries are in the United States. In a sense that Rachel Dolezal is this woman who's on one side, right? Who all of society, you know, sees as white. And we, we again, race is a social construct, which means it's not an individual construct. And so what we see with Rachel Dolezal is this woman who's trying to almost beat herself against the bricks trying to, you know, get to the other side of the, of an ethno-racial identity or a category. She's really trying to like push her way through, but she's hitting a brick wall because the way that our racial boundaries work in the United States, they're very rigid. And so what I say is that in the case of Brazil, I actually encountered many women who I interviewed who had white identities. Don't get me wrong. They saw themselves as white but they were more flexible in how they understood their whiteness. I had several women tell me things like, you know, you know, I love black culture. I love black men and they could, and actually several um, white men as well. So just white spouses in general talked about a love of black culture and also referred to their ancestry, their racially mixed ancestry in a way that allowed them to in a way that showed the flexibility of racial boundaries. And what I saw happening was, I'm trying to think of how to say this, It was this, especially the case for the white men whom I interviewed. I think that several of the white men whom I interviewed in um, Rio de Janeiro, what they did was something that was really fascinating, in which they had this white identity, but whiteness was almost like a sheet that they pulled over their heads and then pulled back. Like, yes, I'm white. No, I'm not white. I'm white because of my skin color, because my parents are white. I'm not white because I have racially mixed ancestry, um, because I have a big butt, I've got curly hair, because in this Carioca or Brazilian understanding of race, white people can't have curly hair. White people only have curly hair if they have black ancestry. So there's this flexibility around whiteness that I, um, that I reveal in the book in which, I'm sorry, I'm like trying to get a lot of complex thoughts out. Um, in which white people were able to push against this boundary, right? So it was more flexible, even at, and sometimes, and even more porous at times in which they could see themselves as white, but not quite white. So a white identity was not as stiff for them, so much so that several of the white women who I interviewed referred to themselves as negras frustradas, in the sense that they're women who are frustrated black women because they are white, but they wish that they were black. And I think that in Rio de Janeiro, in Brazil, Rachel Dolezal would probably be seen as one of those negras frustradas a woman who loves blackness loves black culture loves black men loves black hairstyle loves black music what have you and wishes she were black right but isn't whereas here there's a lot of there's a lot more stigma to her actions we don't have that type of language and the language that we do have for it has historically been very negative if we think about terms like quote unquote wigger for example and also there's this um the stigma associated with her example, being a professor of Africana studies, which is a discipline that was created because Black people were, um, were isolated from academia in the sense that they were not allowed to have positions in academia. So there was, you know, thinking about a white woman taking on a job that was created through Black struggle for Blacks, is was really problematic and was part of the reason why she lost her job.
1: One thing I took away from that was about the flexibility of whiteness. Um, that you, that you found, um, which you talk about in the book as well.
0: Well, you know, I, and I will say that, like, in the Los Angeles context, white people were doing something completely different, right? Where, like, whiteness, but like, thinking about, like, this ethno-racial boundary, they're like, I'm white. But for many of them, when I asked them, like, why, they immediately changed and shifted to this language of, you know, the nation-states based in Europe. Like, I, because I'm German and half-Scottish, Half Irish, you know, putting themselves in these different quartiles or percentiles and 50 percent, 60 percent, this or that, which I thought was really striking. So it became a story of ethnic options instead of a discussion about whiteness.
1: Um, yeah, thank you. So. Uh, the book is called, as you as you mentioned earlier, um, you were you focus on the boundary, um, and it's in the title and it carries throughout all the chapters, um, and so you, it's called boundaries of love, and it, and you find that racial boundaries um, are maintained with interracial relationships rather than dissolved or surpassed, um, and the integration of white spouses of black spouses into white families um, was a space where this boundary was particularly salient. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about this um, with how black spouses um, encountered um, or were integrated into their white families. Um, and then this is just another question. Did, did black families have less problems um, with white spouses? Um,
0: well, when I um, spoke to when I interviewed these couples, um, what I saw was that several black families were uncomfortable with um, their black um, family members marrying white people. However, none of them shunned them for doing so. And this was very different from the situation I encountered in several couples with several white families, in which um, in the United States, especially, there was a shunning of white partners, particularly white women who married black men. There was a disowning of them often. Or there was this um, discomfort in which people did... Practice that colorblind racism in which it's not race; it's because he's moving you to a different, you know, part of the country. It's not race; it's because we don't know him or his family, even though they had not had problems with um, the per- the white the white woman's previous partners or previous relationships, right? And so there was definitely this um, not only discomfort, but a um, there was, so there was this discomfort for, with these relationships. To the point that several of them didn't speak to their families for years, to the point that these family members wanted nothing to do with them, or they talked, um, they spoke ill of these these Black husbands and just totally had, so these couples experienced rejection. These white families often rejected these partners. But over time, there was an acceptance. I won't say that this is something that lasted forever, right? For almost all of the couples that I spoke to in Los Angeles, they had relationships with their white family members. However, because Los Angeles is a city where a lot of people come from all over the country, for, these, for many of these couples, their white family members or even Black extended family members were not people whom they saw every day. These were not people who they you know, had... They might, might have had regular conversations with them over the phone, but they didn't have um, personal contact with them um, in person. And this was different from um, Rio de Janeiro, where I interviewed several people, and Black families didn't really have, um, didn't talk about shunning, or even, uh, similar to you the know, United States, didn't talk about shunning these Black people who married white people, or even um, expressed discomfort around it. What I found was that white families did in Rio de Janeiro, in this place where race mixture has historically been celebrated, that several white families were uncomfortable with these black partners, but were very overt in expressing this discomfort and making jokes about these black partners and um, reminding these black partners that they were not their equals um, and seeing them and treating them as people who were um, even inhuman, inhuman. And I remember there was one instance where a woman talked about how her um how she just had a child with her husband and her brother asked her, Oh, are you gonna get, you know, a bunch of leaves for your baby monkey to sleep in, right? And this was a woman who talked about how her black husband was seen as ugly by all the family members, how they teased him. And just saw him as somebody who was not worthy of her. However, in this context, it's very different because Rio de Janeiro and Brazil in general is a country that has less mobility. So people tend to see their families on a regular basis. There's a large, a higher degree of what we, sometimes people refer to as familialism, right, in which like, families are more central to social life. And so you might not like that Black husband, but guess what? You're going to see him on Sunday when there's feijoada Wada night, you know, when we're having the big barbecue, right? You're going to see him again on Tuesday. You're going to see him again on Wednesday. So what I saw happening was a faster integration of these Black members into white families. I remember in one couple... Um, the white wife talked about how I think her name is Idalia. She talked about how her, her mother initially didn't accept her black husband, but over time she came to accept him and to love him to the point that now she quote unquote sees him as white. So she literally had to shift how she sees his color in order for her to justify accepting him into her family.
1: And so of course, when you're talking about interracial um, couples, Um, and, and marriage, you're also talking about, you know, the family and, um, you know, family formation and, and you have a chapter about the couples and their children and how they classified their children, um, racially. Um, and there were some differences also between the United States and Brazil. So I was wondering if you could talk about that, how the couples classified their children, um, racially.
0: So when I was talking to parents in Rio de Janeiro, I was really surprised that several of them, most of them did not use. No, nobody used the term mulatto, for example, to talk about their kids. And that's like a mulatto in English, right? It's a term we historically use for people who are mixed white and black. So in the Brazilian context, it's a term that's very sexually charged, right? When we think about a mulata, we think about like a woman who's dancing half naked at a samba carnival, right? We're not thinking about your child, your daughter. So what I did find was that often parents talked about their children based on their phenotype. And so what this meant was that if a white a white child had straight hair, light skin, excuse me, if a, if a child of the partnership, um, if a child had straight hair, light skin, then they were white. So parents categorized their children as white. If they had dark skin, if they had like curlier hair, then they were black. So there was this binary way of classifying children that I saw happening for couples in Rio de Janeiro. And at the same time, there were a few couples who talked about their children as being like meio-meo, like in the middle, like uh, mestizo, like mixed. But the overwhelming majority of the parents whom I interviewed in Rio talked about their children as being either black or white. And so I asked parents um, also, thinking about affirmative action policies, for example, in university. Do you think that your child would qualify for affirmative action? And the parents who said that their children were white said, no, because he's white. The parents who said she's black, yes, because she's black. Kids who are mixed, yes, because she's black, right? Because her father's black, because her mother's black, right? Now, in um, Los Angeles, when I interviewed parents, all of them use this biracial mixed label. Nobody saw their child as white. Nobody saw their child as black. They saw them in this additive way where they're both black and white. However, when I asked them about affirmative action policies, several of them, it was almost like the whiteness got weighed a little lighter, the blackness got weighed a little heavier, in which all of the parents said, absolutely, yes, my child qualifies for affirmative action because because she's both black and white. So they're black too. So yes, they qualify. And so another thing that I think is really novel about this book is that I interviewed both partners separately. I think it's really important when doing this type of research on families to be able to get at both husband's and wives' perspectives and, of course, in heterosexual pairings. Because what I'd seen in previous studies was that oftentimes couples were interviewed together and so there, came, there there? was often a common narrative that emerged or what I saw happening a lot in the previous literature was that wives would start to dominate the narrative of like the relationship and husbands were like, yeah, what she said, right? I What mean And so when I interviewed the parents separately, I'm looking at the, at the children. I saw this huge congruency in which parents both saw their children as biracial in the United States. Both parents saw their children as white or black in the Brazilian context. And so there was a large degree of congruency despite interviewing these parents separately. So that was really striking.
1: And so the the next question was about how interracial couples have to navigate. So they have to navigate not only their families, um, but they have to navigate the public um, and, you know, living day to day life um, as interracial couples um, or, or parents of. Um, interracial children, um, they have to navigate um, you know, their encounters with everyday people. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about this, um, the public scrutiny that they experienced um, in Brazil and, and the United States.
0: So what I found happening was that over the course of being in these relationships, these couples stopped paying attention to the outside world. They didn't care, right? They weren't people who were like, looking for approval or disapproval from anybody. At the same time, When talking to them about, you know, the times they've spent out and about in public with their spouses, I found that in Los Angeles, they were largely avoiding predominantly black settings, whether um, black neighborhoods or black um, areas of town or, um, yeah, in general, like black social settings. And what I found was that in Rio de Janeiro, again, similarly, couples are not looking for approval from anybody, right? But what ended up happening was that they were largely avoiding predominantly white and wealthy areas of the city. And this phenomenon was occurring because they were trying to avoid that boundary policing by strangers in which these people who they don't know, you know, who are just who are supposed to should be minding their own business, right? Comment on their relationship and remind them that they are on opposite sides or in different sides of an ethno racial boundary. And that, even that one side is better than the other. Like I remember one woman whom I interviewed. Uh, she was um, a black woman, and she was walking through um, uh, through Rio, and was in a predominantly wealthy area, white wealthy area. And how a woman who was on the street, who was homeless, said to her, "Oh, what a beautiful man! And with that ugly woman, and she's black too, right?" And so when I spoke to this woman about this incident, this, her name was Rizelda, um I call her in the book, she said she wasn't emphasizing the race of the woman, the homeless woman. Instead, she emphasized how it happened to her because they were in a predominantly white, wealthy area of the city. These are the types of things that happen in white, wealthy areas of Rio de Janeiro. And what I also saw happening was that these, these neighborhoods in Rio de Janeiro took on a particular meaning. For black women with white men, in which black women were often seen, or excuse me, in which black women avoided these areas because they realized that they could be mistaken for prostitutes with their Johns, when in reality they were black women married to their husbands, right? And so there's this policing happening in which there are strangers who are commenting or letting them know that they don't belong in both places. But in Rio de Janeiro, People are associating that with the neighborhood, with the, the, the class and the race of the area of the neighborhood. Whereas in Los Angeles, people often talked about black people harassing them, they talked about black individuals. And so when I was talking to black men with white women, there was a fascinating gender thing that was happening, which white women perceived a greater threat from um, black individuals harassing them than black men did. But in this this race-gender combination, white women often saw black women as harassing them in public. And this was different from couples involving black women with white men, who often talked about black men harassing them in public. So there's these different um, patterns that emerged in my data in which there was this individualization of blackness that happened as an explanation for this boundary policing in L.A. Whereas there was this, um, regionalization of whiteness that was happening in Rio de Janeiro. Whiteness and wealth, the two together. And also, I should point out that in Rio de Janeiro, several couples talked about how they do not like being in the southern region of the country because it's white and it's wealthy and they don't like race mixture there. They're not like the rest of us Brazilians who, you know, value race mixture down there and further south. They don't like race mixture. So they don't like couples like us.
1: Um, So I wanted to shift the questions to um, talk a little bit about the carrying out of the research. And the book is just filled with so many um, rich voices of the couples, um, descriptions of the couples and their, you know, interactions. Um, And so I was wondering, how did you find the couples um, for for your research study? Um, and I found it interesting also that you, that it seemed like you had some difficulty finding interracial couples in Rio de Janeiro. Um, and this is particularly interesting um, because obviously Brazil is known for as this country of racial mixture. Um, so I was just wondering how, if you could talk about how you found the couples and just trying to navigate these different cha- like challenges that you encountered.
0: Sure. So I went to Rio de Janeiro and I know that there's this history and this critique in the social science literature about Americans and quote-unquote North Americans coming to Latin America and the Caribbean and imposing their um, Anglo notions of how race works onto these different populations. And in carrying out my research in Rio de Janeiro, I did not want to do that. I did not want to be accused of doing that. And more importantly, I wanted to do a good job of capturing how these Cariocas were understanding ethno-racial boundaries in their lives. And so when I was there, what I did was I Asked Brazilians who were there, "Do you know any?" Also, oh, it gets complicated. So I asked the Brazilians who lived there if they knew couples whom I could interview. Being the good social scientist that I am, you know, I'd done my literature reviews. I'd read up on the, how you know, marriage, interracial marriage, works in Brazil, and I went there and I was trying to look for. Um, interracial couples, casais as the demographers were calling them. And I, when I would use that language, Brazilians would look at me funny, like, what the hell? What? What are you looking for? What are you saying? Are you looking for casais internacionais, like international couples? I'm like, no, I'm looking for this demographic term, casais Interhaciais. And they were like, they were confused by what I said. And so I would say things like, well, you know, there's a story that like in the history of Brazil, there's been a lot of race mixture. And so I'm, and people are like, yeah, we're a very racially mixed na- uh, nation. I was like, okay, well, I'm looking for race mixture today. And then I learned that people would talk, would use a term, oh, you're looking for negro con branco, a black person with a white person. I said, okay, maybe that's what I'm looking for. You tell me. And, but using that language, I was able to find couples who I think demographers are refer, often referred to as interracial couples, um, with some limitations, of course, which I can get into later. But by using this term, like, negros con brancos, I was able to find people to interview. But then I realized that by using this term negro first, people were often referring to me referring me to couples who involved a black man with a white woman. So I actually had to later change my language. And say, I'm looking for also negros con brancos. And so then I was able to find black couples involving black women, um, or p- at least people who couples involving um, people who native Brazilians saw as black or white. Because I really wanted to capture that um, nuance. And so thinking about how to categorize these people became became complicated in the sense I wanted to get the social level of how interracial couples are treated, right from the societal perspective, but also how people identify themselves also matters. And so I, of course, would ask people, like, how do you identify yourself? And what I found was that the overwhelming majority of the people whom I interviewed identified themselves in the exact same way that they were identified by strangers. There's only like maybe three, two or three people who didn't use those terms. But even when they didn't use terms like negro and branco, they, they didn't overlap in how um, their parent, uh, excuse me, how their partner identified themselves. So there's still this element in which we are of different colors, right? Like we do not, we are not the same in this like, ethno-racial, race-color sense. When I was in Los Angeles, I had an easier time in the sense I could just say, I'm looking for interracial couples, I'm looking for black-white couples. But it was just as difficult because there, of course, Los Angeles is a very diverse place with lots of Latinos, Lots of Asians, lots of whites, some blacks, you know. Um, it's funny thinking about like how um, Los Angeles, especially in the nineties, was projected as far as like South Central and Los Angeles being a place that was predominantly black and being about like the hood, like boys in the hood, et cetera. And how that it has shifted dramatically where there is no like South Central anymore. Now it's South Los Angeles, right? And even so, like looking for couples involving black people with white people were very diff- was very difficult. I talked to lots of my friends and colleagues at UCLA, and I started looking for them in public places. So I went to Venice Beach to try to find couples, and I was more successful in finding at finding couples at supermarkets because I could see a couple and see their kid, or on a couple of occasions see a white woman with a child who looked like they were probably biracial and asked in a really like non-threatening way like might you be in a black white relationship you know and try to recruit people that way i really had to put myself out there in a way that was very awkward i often had friends with me who a friend with me who tried to like help me with recruitment to like you know build the morale because it was difficult to do but that was how i was able to find my respondents in los
1: angeles Wow. that sounds sounds very brave um, and it's definitely um, a, a lesson and a shared feeling I think with uh, some you know ethnographers and people who do this kind of qualitative research um, and you also talk about in the book um, having to the nuances of the different places of Brazil of the differences between Brazil and the United states come out when you talk about research methods as well um, or doing, or carrying out the research um, and so you talked about you know for Consistency, of course, you ask the same questions um, uh, across the different the different countries to the different couples, um, but of course, you know, with the different cultural contexts, um, you have to balance the the reactions. And one thing you talk about was asking people in the United States um, about like what is their race um, and the kinds of reactions that they would give you. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about this, because obviously in Brazil, you got different reactions. It seemed to be perfectly fine to ask people about this. But in the United States, it was a little bit more of a awkward question, and you had to navigate people's responses um, in a certain kind of way.
0: Oh, absolutely. It was so awkward. I feel like a lot of my projects, for those of, for those who are really interested in methodology, I think the, the title of my presentation would be like, doing awkward research, right? <laughs> so asking those questions that people think are stupid. So yes, when I was in Brazil, I would ask questions like what is your color? Which is the Brazilian equivalent of asking like what is your race, essentially. And of course there's a large like literature on what is what that means in the Brazilian context. But essentially that's what it was. Now when I was in Los Angeles asking talking to people, interviewing them and I would ask them what is your race, they would look at me like I was crazy. And it was awkward. I'd I'd have to tell them, well, okay, pretend that I'm, like, a Martian coming from another society or another world and trying to understand how race works in this country. Just, you know, give me, like, your understanding of what your race means to you. And also give me your understanding of what your spouse's race means to you. So there was that element that that I... uh, had to negotiate when doing this research.
1: Um, and then I really liked how this idea of the boundary was very consistent um, throughout the book. It, obviously, it's in the title, and then you explore it in different facets of the, the chapters. It's, it's very well, it's very consistent, and the book is just very well put together. Um, and I'm wondering, is this a, was this a feature of your dissertation, this idea of the boundary, um, or did it come about after when you were going from um, dissertation to book?
0: Hmm. I mean, I, I know that I had always been interested in applying that um, ethno racial boundary perspective to this research. I didn't do it in a consistent way in my dissertation. My dissertation was written very differently, it was written as several articles. Um, I didn't understand how I was going to write the book um, when I was doing my dissertation. I had all this data, and I had like some things I thought were important, that and you had to be chapters in the dissertation, but it took me a long time to figure out how to talk about um, this thing called finding a partner of a different race, right? And so I'm in a department where there's a lot of criminal justice scholars, a lot of criminologists, and I remember talking to uh, my former chair, Drew Humphreys, about my research and seeing And her using different terms that were related to the deviance literature. And I remember thinking, huh, that might actually be helpful for me. So I started, like, reading um, more about uh, how deviance and crime works. And, of course, like, I'm I'm not making the argument that these couples are deviants. They are people who, you know, are kind of – are, I mean – it's complicated. Do you want to use a label that has such a negative connotation to these people? Absolutely not. But these are people who are not following the quote unquote normal paths in society, right? The overwhelming majorities, so they're like 80%, is it like 85%, I believe, of all Americans marry people of the same race. In Brazil, 75% of people marry people who are in the same color category, right? So um I had to figure out a way to talk about this. So my dissertation looks very different from this book.
1: And then overall, um it seems like one of the main interventions of the book um revolves around how we popularly understand the relationship between interracial marriage and and racism. Um and so I was wondering if you could talk about talk about this um one of your like main takeaways of the of the book.
0: So I think it's important to recognize that there's Boundary work that's involved when marrying a person of a different, like ethnic or racial group, or mem- um, of a different category. And one thing I didn't emphasize earlier was that people are able to blur or bridge ethno-racial boundaries. The thing is that they require other social categories to do so. So, what, for example, when I spoke to some black husbands, the way that they talked about their white wives, even though their wives were white they saw themselves as kind of covering their wives' whiteness, right, with their own blackness. And it's because of the way that patriarchy, the way that gender works in our society, in which there's that historic understanding of men covering their wives, right? That's part of what the institution of marriage is about. So they were able to use other social categories to bridge over or to blur um, ethnic and racial differences. And so what I'm talking about in this book is I'm showing that – that we shouldn't automatically assume that interracial marriage will lead to this blurring of racial boundaries. And that, in fact, what we see happening is that oftentimes these couples themselves reproduce these racial boundaries. They sometimes you know, push against them or challenge them, right? But they would require other social categories to blur over them.
1: Okay, so we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, so before we end, um, can you tell us what you're working on um, for your next project?
0: Sure. So I'm actually doing something that's not Brazil-related. I have decided that I'm, gonna, I'm I'm actually looking at Nigerian nurses, specifically West African nurses, and trying to understand how they negotiate um, ethno-racial boundaries of care. So I'm interested in how the nursing profession socializes newcomers, people who are coming from other countries, into how to think about race in U.S. terms and how that might influence the ways that they see their patients, how they see their fellow nurses, and um, how that might differ over generations. So I'm still interested in this ethno-racial boundary. I just want to take it to another context to understand the socialization aspect of it and also understand different policy um policy issues that are surrounding this project.
1: That sounds like a really great and important project. Um, And so thank you for writing this book, Boundaries of Love, Interracial Marriage and the Meaning of Race, and for talking about it with us today.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.